Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. Let me ask you this. Have you ever attempted to do something that you knew or it was likely that you would fail? Have you ever thought, I'm going to try this, I'm going to try something out, but there's a really good chance uh, that this isn't going to go well or that you're going to struggle or that you are going to suffer? Uh, I, I kind of think of uh, learning the guitar. I tried that three or four times. I even took a class in college uh, that was classical guitar, and I still do not know how to play uh, the guitar. And by the third or the fourth time, I thought to myself, I'm, I'm probably not going to stick to this, but I just really want to try it, right? I, I, this, is, this is good. This is fun. This is something that I want to do. There's all sorts of scenarios in life where this happens. I think of the medical industry. I I think of people who give their lives to medicine. And after some time, even though other people have failed before them, they come up with things like vaccines or cures or some breakthrough medical procedure. That's an amazing thing that they they thought, I'm going to just try again. Or maybe athletics. Somebody like Simone Biles, who uh, with just her, her body and gravity and momentum accomplishes amazing things. And, and knowing when she starts off the idea that she has in her mind or, or, or the stunt or the, the feat that she is going to attempt, she will more than likely fail at it. Repeatedly, right? Repeatedly she's going to fail at it until it is that she might succeed. Another one that is incredibly common And in fact, the vast majority of you in this room um, have attempted this, or you will, or um, maybe it didn't work out for you, but is marriage. Marriage, right? When you are standing there at the altar and you're going to get married, you know that this is not going to be easy. You know, in fact, it is going to be hard. You are going to suffer. You are going to struggle. In fact, listen, when we uh, marry folks, when people say their vows, they exchange their vows one to another, they will use the phrase, until death do us part. And it's just something that we say, right? It's just in all of the vows, but like in the best of circumstances, that's exactly how that's going to end, Right? And I know that's like a total bummer, right? You're like, man, I was kind of looking forward to marriage. Um, But it ends that way, you know, in the best of circumstances, it ends that way. And yet, all I'm trying to say is we still do it. We still like say, I know that eventually, probably, uh, one of our hearts will be ripped apart. But this is worth it. This is good. This is great. It reminds me of when uh, I was uh, teaching my sons, all three of them, to ride a bike without training wheels, you know? I looked at them, and with a very straight face, I said, this is going to be good. You're not going to—you're not going to fall. This will be fine. You, it won't hurt it, uh, if you fall, if you fall, which you won't. It doesn't hurt, right? I said that knowing full well it was going to hurt. I knew full well that they would fall. I knew that there would be tears and pain and fighting and attitude and me forcing them back on that bike. I knew that my back, after the first one, I knew that my back was going to hurt after running for hours up and down the street holding uh, the back of their seat. I knew all of this, and yet I did it, yet you do it. We all do this. Why? Because we think, we believe that through this, on the other side of this, this is going to be good. 
And they're going to like it, and I'm going to like it, and we're going to enjoy this, and we're going to go on bike rides. And we were right. It is good. There are times, whether it's marriage or bike riding or your careers or athletics, all of these things in which we full well know there's going to be struggle, there's going to be pain, and yet the thing that we are going to try to do is good. It is great. Paul ended uh, the text last week, verse 23, I think it was, in which he says, I am, I have become a servant of it. In that, Paul is revealing to us what he, what he believes that he was created to do. It sounds like just one of those things that Paul says. Paul is always talking in language like that. And so he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Paul, a servant of the gospel. Paul, a servant to the church. It's just one of those ways in which he refers to himself. But listen, it's not just a humble brag. We, we glance over it because it just sounds like something that Paul says, but it's not just a humble brag. It's not just something that Paul says. It is, in reality, what we're talking about this morning. That when Paul said those words, what he was saying was, I'm attempting to do something. I'm trying to do something that is likely going to fail. It's something that has hurt me, that has caused me pain, that I am willing to sacrifice for in order to attempt the good thing, in order to attempt the great thing. That's what he says when he says the word servant. And while it seems so distant to us and something that is just unrelevant uh, to our lives, what he does as we watch him leverage his entire existence towards this good thing, it forces us to ask the question. When you look in the mirror and when you stand there and you examine your life, when you write in your journal, when you look back over the last year, when we say Happy New Year and sing the song, and you look back at what you have accomplished, what you tried to accomplish, it makes you ask the question, is everything in your life leveraged towards something so good, so great, that you are willing to suffer to make it happen? Are you living the life you were created to live. When we look at Paul and the use of his word, when he says, I am a servant of it, then it begs us to ask the question, what are you serving? Let's pray together and we will look at Colossians 1, 24 through 2, verse 3. God, God thank you. We, we come to you now and we just, we just pause for the week. We pause here and, and, and we ask these questions. We, we allow the text to ask these questions of our hearts, knowing that it is not unlikely, knowing that it is not uncommon, that we would willingly suffer, that we would willingly struggle, that we would push, and that we would labor toward the good end. God, I just, I just ask my own heart as the text asks my mind, am I working toward the greatest end? And so be with our hearts and our minds today as we examine this and allow it to speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Colossians 1. I'm going to read the whole text to you, then we'll, we'll put some of it on the board here. But if you have a Bible in your hands, uh, follow along, read along with me, uh, whether that's digital or print. Colossians 1 verse 24 says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completed in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions uh, for his body, that is the church. I have become its servants. According to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. 
God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. Chapter 2, verse 1, 4. I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you. For those in Laodicea and for those or for all who have not seen me in person, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Back up to verse 25, I have become its servant. In verse 23, I, Paul, have become a servant of its. There's going to be at least three, maybe four words in this text that we're just unfamiliar with. We use them differently, and that's not wrong. It's not any slight against us or any credit to them. It's just that language over time evolves, it changes, and the way that we use these words like servants and mystery and perfect as we use them now are different than the way Paul used them. And so we're going to examine that a little bit today. So be on the lookout for that. The first one being servant. We struggle with that word for a number of reasons, but most of all, chiefly among them, is probably because we're not familiar with servants. We don't have servants. If any of us are thinking of a servant, if, if you had to conjure up a, a concept of a servant, then we would probably think of the butler from the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. That, that's the best concept or the last use of servant kind of idea that we have. It's different than that, though. The Greek word under this word means to steward or to minister. So if you gave something to someone else, a resource that you have. Maybe it's uh, personnel like staff or finances or it's facilities or grounds or, or livestock or crops, whatever it is. If you were to give that to somebody else and they were to steward it, meaning that they take your resources and manage them well, invest them and then reap some sort of return and, and give you back more, that would be stewarding. That's managing. That's stewarding well. And Paul says, I am a steward of the gospel message that God has given me. I have stewarded that and I manage that in a way that serves other people. It's a ministry to other people, to the church. He says he's a servant of the gospel and a servant of the church. I steward this and I manage it in a way that brings glory to God. He is living the life that he was created to live. He is serving the church in the way that God instructs him to. That's what he means by the word. And that's just an initial definition of the term so that we can look furthermore on what he does with it, how he does it, and, and why he does that. Furthermore, it's important for us to see that as Paul, one of the most notable of all Christ followers who accomplished a great deal, as he uses the term servant of himself, as that is his self-designation, I, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, as he uses that, what we need to note is that it is a lowly term. That following Jesus is not one of exaltation, but one of humility. That the way up is down, that the way to greatness is to make less of yourself. That's what the reminder is just in the fact, just in the reality that Paul used that word to describe himself, that he is stewarding or managing for the good of others and the glory of God. 
And as Paul walks in this position, as he lives it out, as he writes this down, as he instructs other people, and we see the how and the why and the what of the thing that he is doing, it makes us ask the question of, what good is this, any of this to us? Right? Like Paul lived 2,000 years ago. What difference does it make what Paul thought of himself? It makes absolutely no difference to the second family or to you, to me. But if you give me just a moment, I think that I will show that, in fact, it makes all the difference in the world. Verse 25 and 26 says this, I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make fully or make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Paul says, I have become a servant to make the word of God fully known. The scriptures, the gospel message, this is what it is that he is stewarding. And in that gospel, fully known word of God contains what he calls a mystery. Now, the first word that we sort of use differently is that servant idea. We're unfamiliar with it, but mystery is as well. The way that we use the word mystery and the way that Paul used the word mystery is different. In Langley, Virginia, outside of the CIA headquarters, there is a sculpture. A sculpture of um, what looks like a big piece of paper. It's like this flowing wave, right? And it's huge, and it's made out of metal. And on this, or rather I should say in this, is embossed or, or, or knocked out uh, four different coded uh, messages. Uh, letters and symbols that are knocked out of the metal so that you can see the sun come through it. It's really big and actually kind of impressive and beautiful. It's called a cryptos. The, the actual sculpture is called a cryptos. And it contains, like I said, those four different messages. The sculpture engraved, coded messages inside of this sculpture. Here's the interesting thing about it. It was erected in 1990 and three of the four messages have been decoded. The fourth one, though, remains a mystery. No one knows what it means. Nobody knows what it is saying. But those messages also contain a message within them. That's the way that we think of mystery. Like something that is there with a little bit of evidence, some hints of what we have seen, but still unable to be learned or to be understood. That's kind of the way that we look at the Bible sometimes. It's out there. There's a message there. I can hold it. I can read it. But no one will fully understand it. We're not going to really know it. But that's not what Paul was teaching at all. Paul is, in fact, teaching the opposite. That the Bible, fully known, contains a mystery that is now revealed. So it makes us ask this question, what is that mystery? If he's fully going to reveal this thing that is now uh, known. See, in Colossae, at that time, in that area, there were what's called mystery cults. That was the actual terminology for these different non-Christian religions in which there were these ceremonies and these uh, secret handshakes and these secret words that only those who were enlightened, only those who had been looped in knew. These mystery religions contained secret knowledge that only a few knew about. Paul takes their word and says it's not just for a few. Instead, it has been revealed for everyone. Ephesians 1 verse 9 through 10 says, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ 
as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth. This mystery revealed is Jesus. You see, here's the problem that we have with this. It's the understanding or the, the, the complex idea that God who is just and is perfect would somehow make things right with humanity that has rebelled against that God. The only conclusion to the matter, the only logical conclusion to the matter that is if there is a sovereign who is just and is right and there is a rebel enemy force, then the sovereign, the king, would just eradicate the force. It would just destroy the, the insurgents, would, res, would destroy the rebellion. That makes logical sense. And yet somehow, through God's divine grace, he was going to make those things right. But they are unjust, and he is righteous. How could those two things come together? It makes no sense until you have what could not have been guessed, that there would be this person, this individual, that was fully man and fully God and would take the penalty of humanity on himself and then beat that penalty by himself. That is the mystery revealed. That is the good news that Paul has been given by Jesus Christ himself that he would steward and that he would invest and that he would share with other people. That is a beautiful thought. That is the gospel message. As we go back to last week when we talked about this reconciliation between God and humanity and humanity and other humans that we would come together in the way that God created us to be. That's why anyone who comes to Jesus can be saved. Anyone who trusts Jesus is adopted and given a new life. This profound mystery that God would love us in spite of how wicked we are, that he would continue to love us no matter how many times it is that we turn away from him. That is the mystery revealed. That is what Paul says he has become a servant of. But to what end? What is he doing and where is he sharing this message and how is he investing it? Verse 28, we proclaim him a warning each person and teaching each person with all wisdom so that we may present each person mature in Christ. Now, if you're following along in your text, whatever the scripture is that you have there in your hands, it probably doesn't say this, and it definitely doesn't have these brackets in it. Uh, the CSB actually says, we proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. But the Greek actually says it three times. The English is right. It communicates the idea. It's just that the Greek was emphasizing this idea of each person. That each person was the driving force, was the, was the driving goal of what Paul was trying to share that good news with. Everyone. And so stop for just a second and to, and to think about this idea of every person. Every person means that the, the ones that you love the people that you love that have drifted far from God, they are still targeted by the Holy Spirit and his compassion. 
That if it's this child that you raised that drifted away from Christianity and is living a different life, if it's this friend from college who was a lot of fun but definitely not walking with Jesus, if it's this husband that, that you married that grew up in church that knew all of the stories and all of the Bible characters but seems not to be producing any sort of fruit consistent with repentance or with the gospel, that this person that you deeply love far from God, keep loving them. Keep praying for them. Keep begging God to draw them back because they are included in the each person. Each person, all of them, the person that you love that is far from God. It's also, and this one is harder for us, it's also the people that you do not love that are far from God. That one is encouraging to us, each person that we love. The other one is challenging to us. So it's the person who votes differently than you do. It's the people who are a part of a religion who you see as militant against your religion or people who follow your religion. It's the person who took your loved one in a drunken car accident. That you would never say it out loud and God forbid that you ever write it down, but you hate them. You can't stand them. And it would blow your mind. It would shock you that God would love them too. They are included in the each person. And isn't that a good thing? Because you may be the sort of person that would be excluded if somebody else was picking the each persons. But God loves them. And I want to, I didn't say this in the eight o'clock, but it just kind of dawned on me. The person that you love that's far from God, they're included in the each person. The person that you hate that's not with God, they are included in the each person. And I want you to hear me on this. You are included in the each person. Sometimes you feel so unlovely, so unlovable that God would never. He loves other people like Paul or like the preacher or like all the kids that got matching t-shirts on. God loves them. He doesn't love me. But you are included in the each person. And he says, Paul says that I am not only trying to share the gospel with them, I'm not only leveraging everything about my existence to make sure that every person hears the gospel message, but not only that they would hear and that they would respond, but that they would be mature in Christ. That's another word that we wrestle with, right? Not only because we are immature, but because it means something differently than maybe the way that you think about it. The most common English translations of the Bible are, are versions of the Bible are the New International Version and the King James Version. And it's likely that a lot of you are holding that text in your hand. It uses, both of them use a different word here. It uses the word perfect. Really, that's very, that's, that's hard, right? The idea of perfection, because the idea of perfection, we know what it means. It means without flaw. Jackie and I celebrated our 16th wedding anniversary this last week, and I think she is perfect. I, I believe that. I tell her all the time. But when she looks at herself, she sees flaws just the same way that I do and the same way that you do. When we look at ourselves, we see flaws. And I see flaws not only when I look at myself in the mirror, but also when I pray and when I pastor and when I parent and when I'm a friend and a son and a, and a father and, and all of the different aspects of my life, I see myself as so completely and deeply flawed. And I'm, I'm sure that you do as well, that you look at yourself and you think, I am far from perfect. 
with so many flaws. Never could I ever achieve perfection. And so while it is encouraging that Paul would leverage his life, that people like me, each person, all the peoples like me, would hear the gospel, this presenting them mature, I have to bail out at that point, right? How many of you in here, show of hands, would say, if perfection is the base standard, then I'm out. How many of you would say that? Of course. We're not perfect. We don't feel that way. But that's the Western, that's the way that we modern use the word perfection. Hebrew, though, used the word differently. They use the word perfect as being something that fulfills its purpose. It doesn't have to be without flaw. It just fulfills its purpose. So each week, Pastor David and I, we, we, we make a podcast for small group leaders in our church. All right. And we talk about the upcoming study and stuff like that. I use this illustration in that podcast. Uh, it's like an old truck. If you have this old truck that has like a dent in it or, or a scratch down the side or, or a rip in the, in, in the interior, or it makes this loud noise when you stop at lights, you can see that that is not perfect. But if it gets you from here to there, then the Hebrew way of thinking would be that that is a perfect truck. All right. It's a perfect truck. You don't need another one. So ladies, if your husband wants a new truck, no matter what his truck is like, you'd be like, your truck is perfect. All right. According to the Bible, your truck is perfect. That's the way that they thought. So what he's saying here is that I want to proclaim to every single person the good news, the gospel message of reconciliation through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then in that, they would develop into fulfilling what they were created to do. That they would fulfill that purpose. That they would live their actual created purpose. When you tag all of this together, what we get is that this each person concept, and, and you put that together with fulfilling of God's purpose, that every per- person has a purpose. That pur- purpose, I'm having a hard time saying that word, that purpose is to help others and glorify God. Each person, including you, When you take it one step further, back to the purpose is achieved in the full knowledge of the Word of God. That accepting Jesus and growing in knowledge and wisdom, which we find in the Bible, is what we were created to do. Every person was created to do that. It's easy, right? That's easy peasy. And sharing that should be easy. Think about it this for a second. Paul, what Paul does did what I do, what many of you do. When you stand before other people and you say, hey, your life is broken and it seems to be unfulfilled and you're frustrated and you're sad and you're lonely and all that kind of stuff, I've got good news. The God of the universe loves you and sacrificed himself for you to recreate you in his image the way that you were supposed to be. That sounds easy, right? That sounds like the easiest job in the world. If you were just walking around telling people about that, they'd be lining up like you're giving away free breakfast burritos. But they don't. They don't. Twice, Paul says that he struggled in this idea. Look in 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. In verse 1, for I want you to know how greatly I struggled or I am struggling for you. At the end of chapter 1, he says, remember, he labors in this idea that this is hard work. That what he's being a servant of is, is, is suffering. It's not easy. What it means and what it reminds us of is this idea that we ought not, if you're going to follow Jesus, listen to me. If you're going to follow Jesus, don't be surprised that it's hard to follow Jesus. 
You know, our friction with this idea is that we have become intoxicated with the idea that God's primary purpose is to make your life safe and comfortable. That we think that God wakes up in the morning just concerned that you're, you're, that you're just safe and that you're comfortable. Like he's like, how are you doing, buddy? Is everything good? How's the temperature? You need a little colder, a little warmer? Everything going good? Is your seat cushy enough? Are you happy? You need a little bit? You need a snack? Like that's God's main objective in the day. And it's not. But we act like it is. And we're frustrated when it's not. Listen, we worship a perfect individual who lived a perfect sinless life and was beaten and killed. What makes us think that it's going to be easier for us? And then Paul, like Paul is a stud, right? He's varsity level Christian. And he gave his life and was shipwrecked and excluded and beaten and isolated and imprisoned and ultimately crucified like Jesus. To share this gospel message and all of Jesus's friends and all of Paul's friends all suffered and died So listen to me, there is nothing wrong with working towards safety. There's nothing wrong with like protecting your family or trying to be comfortable. I I think that comfort and safety, those are good gifts from God. They are good, enjoyable gifts from God that should be enjoyed by his believers. But all I'm saying is this, is don't be surprised if it's not. Don't be disappointed in God if it's difficult that you live in a broken world that we broke. Don't be upset about those sort of things. At some point, we have to get to the same point that Paul got to, and I rejoice in my suffering. Let me give you something that's not part of the sermon. You can write it down and think about it later when you're driving by yourself. Maybe you're not struggling. Maybe you're not suffering because you're not fulfilling what you were created to do. Maybe those things go together and you're not doing what you were created to do. So this rejoicing has to speak of something more. It has to be something better, right? Why would Paul leverage his entire existence towards suffering and hurting so that other people can hear a message? What would it benefit them? What would it benefit Paul? He says in verse 2 of chapter 2, I want my desire, my goal, my motivation, I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love. What Paul says here is this, is I'm willing to sacrifice. I'm willing to take the hit. I'm willing to take the tackle. I'm willing to go through the pain if they don't give up and if they don't be alone. So long as they don't give up and they're not alone, then I'm willing to take it in myself. I'm willing to take it for their good and God's glory. I know y'all think that I'm a broken record, that I only sing one song, and I'm not a broken record. I just only have one song. I just sing it in different tunes. For their good and God's glory is the whole thing. It's the whole point. He says he's willing to do this so long as they don't give up. Listen, Paul is not a cheerleader standing on the sideline. He is a player taking the hit, opening the gap so that you can run forward. He's taking it within himself. And when God says at the beginning of the whole story, it is not good for man to be alone, he meant that. He created us so that we would have one another, so that we would not only walk with other people, not just proximity like in this room, where you are sitting close to other people, but that you would be welded together with other people. 
that you would actually be bonded together with other people. Paul is a servant to Christ's church by making sure that the gospel, the good news is fully known and producing people that are, that are everything God expects them to be. All people, not just perfect people. He is motivated to do this, keeping the end in mind that each person would find Christian community and that they would carry on, that they would keep going, that they would not give up. Don't grow weary of doing good. Listen, in our culture and in our society, it is hard to do good. It is hard to love and to be truthful and to be honest. Walking the Christian life is hard. It is not easy. Don't be lulled into this false security that if you, just, if you just do what is right, then everything will go right. I promise you it will not. But it is still right to do what is right. It is always right to do what is right. It is hard to forgive. It is hard to care. It is hard to sacrifice. These things are hard. But Paul, I echo what Paul is saying. Don't give up. Be encouraged. Be strengthened and walk together in this. So as I said at the start, what does this have anything to do with us? This is what Paul said to the Colossian church. Original intent of the author. That's a big thing in hermeneutics and understanding the Bible. Original intent of the author. That has nothing to do with Conway, Arkansas, and yet it does. It really does. It all comes down to this question. What do you see the primary function of the group that you are part of called the church? What's the main reason you showed up to this and you keep coming back? What's the main reason that you are connected into this thing? Over time and throughout history, there have been different non-spoken emphases arise. One of them is just this idea that the main purpose of the church is to preserve. Preservation. That there's a certain style of clothing or a certain style of music, or there's a certain style of the way that we interact with one another, that the church is to preserve. That we are to keep intact. That if you don't go to church for 50 years, you can show back up at the church and it's going to be exactly like you left it. That this idea of the church to preserve things the way that we liked them at one certain period of time. And that's why we're so mad when things start to change or look different. We're mad or we disengage or we're hurt because that's what it's supposed to do. Everything else changes. It's supposed to stay the same. Maybe you're not that way. Other people, they think it's society. Like society. The church is supposed to be this, this fortress that makes sure that all the liberals on the West Coast or the crazies in the New England don't affect the way that we live our lives. And so we are going to primarily be a voting block or we're going to primarily be something that is political. And so we are societal in our purpose. We either preserve or we push back as of late, one of the largest perspectives of what the church is supposed to do is this self-realization. That somehow, in some way, this gospel message has been perverted into this idea that if you show up, somebody's going to get paid to help you realize your best self. That you are going to live your best life now. That that's the idea. That's the main purpose of the church. And all of those, while maybe good in intention— are far from reality. That's not why we gather together. That's not what we do. You see, what Paul did inadvertently when he said, this is what I was commissioned, this is what I was created to do to provide the church this, then he showed us what it is that God intended by the church. 
If God built this for the church, then he shows us what the church needs, which is an emphasis on two things, that we are all about the Bible and that we are all about each other. We're going to be all about the Bible, that we join together, not just mentioning a Bible verse and then going on with stories or or, or jokes or some sort of idea like that, that we would be standing on and rooted in and swallowed up and drowning in the Word of God, that we would meet in smaller groups and that we would study and memorize and, and devote ourselves to Scripture, that that's what we are going to do. Sometimes I'll get pushed back with people who are visiting with our church and they want us to have little small groups that are based on yoga or, or powerlifting or, or football or, 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 I don't know, all these other different sort of interests. And they're like, don't you have these things? Won't you start these things? And the answer is no. Join a Facebook group if you want to hang out with people like that. And that's good. And I think you should. I think you should have interest, but there is no other organization outside of the church that is all about fully making known the Word of God. And so that's what we do. It's not because we don't like the other thing. It's just because this is what we were made to do. The Bible. Love the Bible. Read it until you love it. Be in the Bible. It is mysterious and beautiful and epic and grand but be in the Bible. The Bible is so amazing. And be committed to one another. We as a people are created by the gospel and we are welded together so that we can step into each other's lives and that we can cheer each other on. At this point, I want to just say that you need to be in a small group. This whole being together thing is not, like I said, proximity. It's investment. It's closeness. It's together. You have to love one another. That's what we were created to do. Why? Because the end goal is so worth it. A few weeks ago, Jackie was speaking at a, a little ministry that we do here that ministers specifically to mothers of, of young children, preschoolers. Amy Daniels runs the ministry, doing a fantastic job. You really are. And all these people are, you know, invested in it. And it's really great. And she was speaking and she was she was talking about something. I don't, I don't actually know what she was talking about, but she needed an illustration. They don't invite me to it, all right? It's for mamas. And so she wanted this illustration where she was going to take a, a vase and she was going to break it and put it back together. So, so we took this vase, or vase, if you're from Northwest Arkansas. We took this thing and um, she, she broke it, right? And I told her, I said, baby, don't break it real hard because it's going to be hard to put it back together. Just break, just break it a little bit. And she went outside and she dropped it on the concrete. And so she broke it real hard. And so we were supposed to put this thing um, back together. And we did pretty good. Um, but uh, some pieces wouldn't stick in there. And man, it was hard. It was hard to do this. We got out the Gorilla Glue. Y'all know what Gorilla Glue is? Can I just say, and this isn't a paid endorsement, that stuff don't work, all right? Um, that's why they won't endorse me. Um, it, I've never had Gorilla Glue work. Like there's compounds like JB Weld, that stuff will, that stuff will hold you down. Um, but then there's also like super glue. Those things work, but, but Gorilla Glue, I mean, eventually it hardened, but it takes forever. And so I was out there trying to help her and I would, you know, you don't want to be the like husband and go in there and like take it from her. And so like I was trying to help and we got glue all over our hands and stuff and it just wasn't working. So I, I, I offered husband advice and I said, how about we just use duct tape? Do you see the duct tape on the inside there? 
Duct tape will hold anything together, all right? Take that Gorilla Glue. And so this duct tape started to hold things together, and it was kind of working and stuff like that. And the irony of it was, even though we couldn't get that Gorilla Glue to really work at the time, it would not come off of my hands. It was all over my hands, and it was all sticky and all this kind of stuff. And so Jackie very carefully, you know, like took some non-Gorilla Glue um, digits, and she Googled how to get uh, Gorilla Glue off of your hands. Turns out acetone will take Gorilla Glue off of your hands. So guys, acetone is what they use um, to take off the fingernail polish on their, their fingernails. Um, it's, it's a toxic chemical. They've got toxic chemicals on their side of the, the bathroom. They're complaining about a little hair in the sink. They've got hazardous material on their side of the bathroom. Just telling you that. That's what that is. It smells good but it's a chemical. And so she says, that'll take it off. And, but she doesn't give me any instructions. So she hands me this acetone or she says it out there like that. And so I just take it and dump it in my hand, just like this. And that's when I figured out I had cuts all over my hand. And it hurt, it hurt real bad, all right? I tried to get an ambulance, care flight to children's, but um, she wouldn't do it, she didn't care. So eventually it all came off. It was amazing stuff, it just came off. And eventually it hardened and it worked, but it didn't work out the way that I wanted it to. It didn't work out the way that we wanted to. That stuff, that little project turned into a big ordeal. The stuff that held it together really doesn't hold it together the way that we want. It's not like the bond of Christ, like this rebirthing into this family, that we are held together by something much greater, by the love of Jesus Christ. And it's that love of Jesus Christ that caused him to sacrifice his life to save you and caused Paul to sacrifice his life to take on this mission that was more than likely going to fail, that this one person that was created to share that gospel out and him and all the rest of the church shared the gospel out, that he took on this idea that he was going to share the gospel to the ends of the world that he was going to tell people that there was a redeemer. There's no way that that is going to work. And eventually he was killed for it. So by all worldly standards, we stand back and say, he failed. It didn't even go to the ends of the earth. Like the earth wasn't flat. It was round and he didn't make it around. He failed at it. Except for there's this thing about it, that that mission that he took on, to share the gospel to each person, it is very much the reason you are sitting in this room right now. He did not fail. And it wasn't Paul who did not fail. Christ does not fail. And you are invited into that mission. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.